0: The Bristol police had been tipped about suicide attempts before, but this was different. Two sisters reportedly called the English branch frantic. Their brother was set to jump from the nearby bridge the next day. They were just a stone's throw away from the Clifton Suspension Bridge, a 331-foot marvel that often beckoned the forlorn and depressed. But on this day, it attracted another class of men, and they came donning tuxedos, champagne, and a long elastic bungee, which, as it turns out, was the very first of its kind. Not far from the bridge is Oxford, the world's oldest university, and in the 1970s it was bubbling with disruption, and nothing was more disruptive than the dangerous sports club. Organized by David Kirk, the club was dedicated to performing the most outlandish activities. You didn't just join the Dangerous Sports Club. You were drafted, but only after adhering to a ridiculous code. First, dress appropriately for all dangerous events. Now that includes tuxedos or any hysterical costume to get more attention. Second, drink champagne when convenient. Coincidentally, the DSC believed that every situation was convenient. Whether skiing down a mountain on a grand piano or hang gliding off the cliffs of Mount Kilimanjaro, nearly every photo from the era shows members with a drink in their hand. And just to show off their non-conformity, the club chose a wheelchair dummy dressed in a full body cast as their mascot. The engineering members designed elastic ropes that could sustain the weight, and everyone assumed they'd use the dummy to test it first. But David thought that this precaution would blight the prestige of the DSC. So, on April Fool's Day, 1978, David found himself staring over the bridge. After all the creative fervor of the past few weeks, he was faced with the dizzying reality. Somebody had to jump first. I climbed over the balcony there, or the rails... Clutching a top hat with a handkerchief around my face because I didn't want my mother to recognize me. How then does David get through the fear that overwhelms him? How does he make that jump? Alison Wood at Harvard answered that question. She asked a number of subjects to sing a tune that you've probably heard, Don't Stop Believing, by Journey. And they did it in front of a group of participants. She actually didn't care if they knew the words or even if they had a good voice. No, what Wood really wanted to know was how to manage the anxiety people feel in high-stress environments. What was really interesting, to me at least, is that the common methods we've heard like breathe deeply or tell yourself to keep calm, those just weren't the cure-alls that we have been led to believe, which is why Wood had a hunch. So, before the karaoke nightmare began, she asked a select few to reframe their anxiety by stating, I'm excited. Sounds gimmicky, right? But after these participants were analyzed with voice recognition, they sang wildly better. What makes the excited state so powerful? Wood explains that feeling anxious is associated with a threat mindset. We're worried about how things can go wrong in the future. But when people are feeling excited, They're focusing on the opportunities, how things can go well and work out in their favor. By focusing deliberately on the positive potential outcomes, you actually are more likely to achieve them. It's a simple hack of the amygdala, that place responsible for our fight or flight. But instead of a threat, we assign a positive meaning to those chemical reactions. This reorientation is an easier shift. It's a sidestep, really, for the mind. Think of it this way. If your heart is going to beat rapidly, then the sweat stains should come from excitement rather than nerves. Reframing the mind by saying, I'm excited, has helped people in public speeches, math tests, and business projects. And in David's case, it helped him become the first man to bungee jump. Well, sort of. The idea of bungee jumping was inspired from the vine jumpers of New Guinea, Where their idea came from, I I don't know. I believe it's some sort of rite of passage. And it made a, a lasting impression on me. Considered a ritual entrance into manhood, these vine jumpers would leap from 80 feet, reaching speeds up to 45 miles per hour. The intent was to see how hard they could hit the ground and still survive which means the bravest usually walked away with both a concussion and social prestige. The truth is, they were doing it for the ladies, and so was the DSC. But they were also using the same methods Allison Wood discovered, the power of redirecting your nerves. When National Geographic explorers observed these vine jumpers, they realized that each jumper had his own style, milking his time on the platform with songs, clapping, slow-motion pantomimes, dramatic posturing and speeches. Some even pretended to lose their balance and nearly fall. It was a comedy routine, an attempt to lighten the anxiety of a potential death. And that's the same zaniness that got Kirk and the rest of the DSC through most of their fearful exploits. At the top of the bridge that day, the local police, they didn't have a form to fill out as David and his crew climbed back up top. They'd never seen anything like it, so they had to make up a new violation. They couldn't have been nicer. And uh, they let us off with a 50-quid fine. They said, oh, well, thank God we got away with that. Now, we've learned that the common answers of exercise and meditation really do help you build a reservoir of resources just to combat that stress. And that reframing your mindset with, I'm excited, can retarget your nerves and provide a braver you. It's like turning the saber-tooth into a kitten. So, consider those situations we had thought about earlier. The ones that bring the most fear. For me, it's bedtime with the kids. Now, they're all young. And that means my wife and I have to be synchronized like a NASCAR pit crew. Bathe these two, switch, rotate to the room for pajamas. Hey, honey, where's that comb? Oh. The wheels are coming off. Now, I've learned that on the days I write in my journal about my family, those moments feel far less overwhelming. It's important to take assessment because you can forecast a behavior before these situations actually arise. And it provides guidance for today's microbehavior. Are you ready? Here it is. When you know you've got a stressful event ahead, then take a few minutes to write three value affirmations beforehand. These value affirmations can answer who you love and why. They'll define your constant worth in this world, especially when that moment may tempt you to feel worthless. They identify what provides long-term purpose and fulfillment, your family, adventure, learning, service. Any of these can be a cornerstone value for you And writing these out will help remove distractions and quite literally create artifacts of your understanding. Who you are at your best. It doesn't always have to be written, though. A dear friend of mine found another creative way to conjure up his values. He pulled out a picture of his family before big presentations at work. And he found bravery thinking about his own children going to school when there was a bully they faced. They were so brave, and if only they knew the confidence that they deserved if only they could see themselves as he saw them. Reflecting on your values does not mean that the moment becomes less scary, but rather it becomes less significant in the larger vision of your net impact on the world.